So with that said, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you once again to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We are going to be starting this book, the second part of the series in Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you'll find 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning on page 255, or 254 rather. I'm going to read the first part of 2 Samuel 1, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get to work in this passage. It should be around 45 minutes or so. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Let's pray. For God alone, our soul waits in silence. Our hope is in Him. He is the rock, He is the refuge, He is the stronghold. He is our salvation. He is our fortress. May we run to no other place. Holy Spirit, will you come and do the work that only you can do? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may become like Jesus for Jesus' glory. Amen. The title of my sermon is the politics of power, and it's somewhat of a fitting subject as we're in a very highly charged political climate now. This week I read some quotes about politics. Politicians and diapers should be changed frequently, and for the same reason. I read someone say, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Mark Twain said, suppose you were a member of Congress, and suppose you were an idiot, but I repeat myself. (laughs) Well, you might be cynical about politics too, and that's, I think, understandable. Every election cycle, things get rather ugly, don't they? And why is that? Why is it that politics brings out ugliness in human beings? Isn't it because politics is about power? And battles over power always bring out the worst of human behaviors. Powerlessness may be one of our deepest fears. And we'll do almost anything to avoid feeling powerless. Why do we disobey God? 
why do children disobey their parents? Isn't it because we want to be the ones giving commands, not receiving them? We all want to be in authority, not under authority. And yet, try as we might, God is God and we are not. And there is nothing that we can do to change that. We don't want to obey God. We want to be God. And all of human life is about this basic struggle. And yet the irony of the matter is that the more we try to become like God, the less like a human we become. Every attempt to be God and to have God's power leads humans to the most beast-like, cutthroat, animalistic behaviors. Tim Keller wrote, pride makes you a predator, not a person. And this predatory, power-hungry behavior is sadly the playing field of politics. And sadly, this is exactly what we see in the passage before us. After the death of King Saul at the end of 1 Samuel, there is a power vacuum in Israel. And as has happened since the dawn of time, when men see a power vacuum, what do they do? Almost anything they can to fill that power vacuum with a little of themselves. Men are drawn to power like moth to a flame. It is a drug. And there's not a person in this story, truth be told, not a person in this room who has not been affected by human addiction to power, either directly or indirectly. And in the power vacuum of King Saul's death, several political power grabs take place, and all of them end in ruin. The passage before us is a warning against the allure of power. It is a warning which shows to us the fate that befalls all who pursue power by worldly means. The solution to our addiction to power you may find surprising. It is to know that power belongs to the Lord. So wait and be silent. Power belongs to the Lord. So wait and be silent. The first power grab that we see unfolding for us in this text comes from outside of Israel comes from an Amalekite. Let's keep reading verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, well, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head 
and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now, if you've read 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter in 1 Samuel, there's something in this Amalekite story that doesn't add up. You read 1 Samuel 31, you know that Saul fell on his own sword. That he commanded his armor bearer to kill him, and his armor bearer wouldn't, and so his armor bearer fell on his sword. And the author said that Saul died that day, and the author said that a day later the Philistines found Saul's body, and they desecrated Saul's body, and that's a completely different story than the one that this man is telling. So who's telling the truth? David doesn't know. Well, one commentator put it like this. When you have the option between the biblical author and an Amalekite, you go with the biblical author. This man is lying. By chance, he happened to be on Mount Gilboa after a faithful battle. Well, he just had said that the people fled. They either died in battle or they fled from the battle. And here he is on the field of battle. Why didn't he flee? Why is he among the slain with the Philistines so close by? He sees the king, and Saul doesn't recognize him. He says that Saul's been leaning on his spear, but in chapter 31, we know that he fell on his sword. The man says that he killed Saul. He stripped him of his crown and his armlet. He leaves the king's body on the field of battle to be found by the Philistines, and he runs to David. Also, David had asked not just about Saul, but also about Jonathan. And this man has no mention of Jonathan. He's only interested in informing the king, the incumbent king, about the fallen king. I'm not sure he expected David's reaction. But David's reaction was to tear his clothes, to mourn the king and Jonathan and all of Israel. And then in verse 13, David returns to his inquiry. Something is fishy about this story. Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you, do you come from? And he answered, well, I'm a sojourner, the son of a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So he asks the same question as he asked him the first time. Where do you come from? The first time it was like, where do you come from? And this time it's like, where do you come from? Like, what's your background? And he says, well, I'm, I'm the son of a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. A sojourner is someone who is not an Israelite, but who had settled in the land of Israel. So he would have known that it was wrong to strike down the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed. Remember, the word anointed is Messiah. Besides, he's an Amalekite. And this chapter opened telling us that David had just returned from doing what? 
striking down Amalekites. Well, that should clue us in on something. David was out doing the very thing that Saul was supposed to do a long time ago and didn't. David was out doing the thing that Saul didn't do that actually lost Saul the kingdom in the first place. So David knows this man is acting in his own interest. He saw an opportunity for himself. He thought, well, I'll tell David that I killed Saul and I'll bring him the crown and the royal insignias and I'll be the hero. Then maybe they'll write stories about me. And then when David comes to power, maybe a little bit of that power will be mine. But it was a giant miscalculation. And David says, how is it that you, Amalekite, you weren't afraid to put out your hand against the Lord's anointed And David has the man killed. David will not assume power in this way. David will not come to power through the blood-stained hands of wicked men. If it is the Lord's will, then it will come in the Lord's way, not the way of man. Well, as you were reading ahead in preparation for today's worship, I hope that you were encouraged by and moved by verse 17 to 27 as much as I was. The song of David's lament for Saul and for Jonathan is moving. You know the story. You know how much Saul had done against David. And yet here we see David honoring Saul as the king, the Lord's anointed. In verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. He tells the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. There's no boasting in David over his fallen enemy. This is a mourning. This is a lament. And then David, perhaps the most moving part of this for me, I told Sarah this week, this is one of the things that it's difficult about preaching is that the thing that moves me most in a text is often not the main point, so we can't spend a lot of time on it. The most moving thing in this whole, this whole passage for me is verse 26, when David says this of his, his best friend, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David had lost a dear, dear friend, and he is heartbroken and lamenting the loss of his friend. Some moderns take this verse to mean that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. I think that says more about us than it does about David and Jonathan. It says that moderns have such a thin and weak understanding of love that all the rich catacombs of love which God gave to us, we've collapsed all those categories into one, erotic love. Modern man is so lonely, so relationally poor, so starved of real love that when he sees love between friends, the kind described here as pleasant and extraordinary, he has only one category for it. And Cornerstone, I am zealous for all of you to know the glorious riches of a David and Jonathan-like friendship. It is a gift of heaven adding color to life, deepening your joy in the Lord. May the Lord be gracious to give all of us 
David and Jonathan like friendships. In chapter 2, David prays. Saul's gone, so the threat to David going back to Israel is gone, and David wants to go home. Remember, he's in, in Philistia. And the Lord tells him to go to Hebron. So David and his family, it's a very significant place in Israeli history. David moves his family and his men to Hebron. And look what happens in verse 4 of chapter 2. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You know, it's been more than a decade since Samuel came to David's house when he was a little boy and anointed him the king. And finally, a decade later, he's being acknowledged as the king over God's people. Well, at least some of God's people. And the first act the king does is to honor those who had honored Saul, the men of Jabesh-Gilead. At the end of chapter 31, we found that they, found, they went and they got the body of, of Saul and they brought him back into Israel and they buried him. And they honored King Saul. And so David honors them and he prays for them. There are 12 tribes in Israel. David is acknowledged as king over the tribe of Judah. What about the other 11 tribes? Well... There's another power play going on in the vacuum of Saul's death. We find this one in chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. This is Abner's power play. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So when the power vacuum left behind by King Saul's death, a couple of things happen. First, David returns to Israel, but he doesn't seize power. You, you remember, Samuel said, you're the king, and David will not seize power. The people came to him. And here's what the author wants us to see, that while David is being acknowledged by the people in Judah as king, Abner, the, the, the first the, like four-star general over Saul's army, he installs Saul's son over the rest of Israel. And Abner, as we will see in a moment, has a reason for this. Ishbosheth, the name means the son of shame. And that's not his given name, that's just what the author has decided to call him. We'll see some reasons why later. So here we have one nation and two kings. Rival parties, and they'll meet to discuss politics, or really they'll meet to discuss which one of them gets to die. Let's pick up reading in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, 
And the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. To have one army over here, one army over here, and they send forth a delegation into the middle. It's like West Side Story, except since of, since dan- instead of dance fighting, it's real fighting. And you take your best 12, and we'll take our best 12, and whoever wins, wins. Where have we seen this before? Joab is introduced. Joab is the four-star general, the commander of David's army. And we're told that Joab is the son of Zeruiah, and that's a woman. It's somewhat uncommon for a man to be named after a woman, but it's important in this story because Zeruiah is David's sister. And so Joab is family to David. He's David's nephew. He's got a few nephews in this story. So these two armies set up a competition. Your best against my best. Whichever 12 wins will be the like true 12 tribes of Israel. The rest of us will surrender. Well, it doesn't work out that way. I guess they all had the same teacher because everyone does the same move. It's like, grab your opponent by his hair and thrust your sword into his side, which is a brilliant move because you're, you don't have armor on your side. It's a brilliant move, unless that move is exactly the same thing that your opponent is going to do because they're going to grab you by your head and thrust into your side, and you're both going to die, and that's exactly what happens, 24 men dead. It'd be funny if it weren't tragic. So 24 dead Israelites and no clear winner. All this buildup, all these negotiations, and no one wins. It's worse than soccer. In verse 17, they all rush into battle. And Joab's men, David's armies, they're winning. And Abner, from Saul's side, rather than surrender, they run. And Joab's men take up a chase. And now, I'm not going to read the rest of chapter 2. I'm just going to explain to you, here's what happens. Joab's younger brother, a young man by the name of Azahel, we're told is a good runner. He's fast on his feet. And Abner's running, and he takes off after Abner. Abner, you remember, is a seasoned soldier. That Azahel, he's a young man. And Abner looks behind him and he sees Azahel and he says, turn aside, young man. Find someone else to chase. You don't want what's going to happen to you. But Azahel wants to be a hero. He's going to keep chasing Abner. And so Abner does the, the thing that some of you have probably done on the highway. Slam on your brakes to see what might happen. 
So Abner slams on his brakes, and he puts his spear down like this, and the butt of his spear is sticking up behind him, and Azahel's in a full sprint, and he runs right into that butt of that spear, and it goes into his stomach and comes out the back, and he dies. Moral of the story, don't run cross-country. You never know what might happen to you. Well, after a short pause, Joab keeps up the chase, and they face off against one another, and they're blaming each other for the day's casualties. But eventually, they all decide enough Israelite blood has been spilled, and they decide to go home. And we're told at the end that Abner had lost 360 men, and Joab had only lost 19 men plus his brother, but he lost his brother. So they bury Azahel, and they go home to Hebron. Chapter 3 opens with a long civil war in Israel. And we're told that David is getting stronger while Ishbosheth is getting weaker. We're told that David gets himself more wives. He's having a power play of his own. The author makes no comment on to about David's polygamy, and as I've said previously in this series, the rest of 2 Samuel will serve as commentary enough on David's polygamy. Every power play that we've seen so far ends in disaster, and so will David's. Stay tuned. Chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner... We're still talking about Abner's power play. Abner is making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. He said, am I a dog's head in Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love. To the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba, from sea to shining sea. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner tilts his hand here. Ishbosheth was his pawn. It's Abner who is the real strong man in Israel, and he knows it. Do you hear the way that Abner talks? Ishbosheth accuses him of sleeping with Saul's concubine. Did Abner actually do that? We don't know. But the public accusation that he did is enough to dishonor Abner, and he won't have it. So he vows to switch sides, and he's going to take all of Israel with him. He's so confident in his political power that he promises to convince the elders of the 11 tribes to swear loyalty to David. Notice the language in verse 9 and 10. I will make him king, like the Lord promised. I will set up his throne. Hold up. Who sets up the throne in Israel? Is it Abner? It's God. 
But not in Abner's mind. He's the real man of power. Remember, it was Abner who made Ishbosheth king. And Ishbosheth knows he's beat. It's no wonder the author calls him a son of shame. He has no power. He's a figurehead. He's not the real king. So Abner goes and says, sends word to David. And he says to David, make a covenant with me and I'll give you Israel. He's sort of like saying, I've, I've already installed Ishbosheth as king. I'll install you as king. So Abner believes himself to be above the kings, the government in Israel. It's political maneuvering. And it's a little heavy-handed. And David is wise and catches up with Abner's game. It seems that David knows exactly what Abner's doing, but David understands that this is a way to end this civil war without more bloodshed. But still, he wants Abner to know his place. And so he sends a reply, I'll make a covenant with you, Abner, but you got to run an errand for me first, errand boy. David sends messengers to the king, to Ishbosheth, not to Abner. Sort of like telling Abner, kings deal with kings. Let the parents talk, Abner. You're my errand boy. Stay in your lane. It's a rather smart move. So what's this errand? David wants his wife, Michael, back. You'll remember that David's first wife was a young lady by the name of Michael, and we're told that Michael loved David. Michael is Saul's son, and her daddy used her as bait to try and get David killed. It didn't work. And when Saul sent people to kill David, Michael protected her husband. And then after Michael left, or after David fled Israel, her daddy took her and gave her to another man. Why? Despite David, probably. Despite her for being faithful to David. Her own father used her in his own political power play. Well, some years later now, men show up at Michael's house and they take her from her husband. And there's this really heartbreaking scene in verse 16 where her husband is following, weeping. And then a powerful man named Abner just brushes him aside, tells him, go home. Once again, Michael is caught in the middle of a political power play between men. And she gets added to David's harem. What is he, up to seven now? Abner keeps up his end of the deal, talks to the elders of Israel, and they swear allegiance to David. They all agree, and there will be peace. Abner comes to David in Hebron, and David throws him a feast, and he sends him off in peace. 
think the word peace appears three times in this little section, setting us up for what's about to happen. Things are going pretty well for old Abner. The strength in Israel shifted from the house of Saul, and now it's with the house of David, and so Abner goes along with where strength is. He's lined things up pretty well. But as these things go, when one man ends up in power, another man wants to take it. Re-enter into the story, Joab. David's loyal commander comes home from doing David's work. And he comes home and he sees that somebody just threw a feast. And who did they do the feast for? They threw a feast for Abner. Now there's a peace treaty with Abner. And Joab tells the king, you're dumb. Abner can't be trusted. This was a terrible idea. So what does Joab do? He does a little political maneuvering of his own. Let's pick up reading in verse 26 of chapter 3. When Joab came out from David's presence, after, by the way, rebuking the king... He sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. After when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. David's ticked. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Well, you remember, Abner killed Azahel. That's true. But he killed him on, bat, on the field of battle. Joab killed Abner in cold blood. This is murder. This is not about protecting the king. This is about getting vengeance. This is not political, not just political. This is personal. Notice where he's... Joab stabbed him in the stomach. Notice how he took him aside privately, and who was there to meet them? Joab's other brother. This was more than political. This is the oldest motivation there is. Vengeance. Behold the power allure of vengeance. Joab is not thinking about Abner's family, about his wife, about his children, those who loved him. Joab doesn't care whether Abner risked his life for the king, for all of Israel on the field of battle. Joab doesn't care about this peace treaty that his king has signed with him. Nothing mattered in compared with the gratification of getting revenge. He couldn't imagine... The man who killed his brother getting away with it. He couldn't imagine serving alongside someone who had done him such wrong. 
Abner might even take Joab's job as commander of the armies of Israel. And we're going to see this later in Joab's life. He hates David's leniency. A leniency, ironically, which David extends to him. What Joab did was wrong. Issue your judgment. But before the gavel falls on Joab's case, search your own heart. How, how often do you and I act against our king's will, seeking vengeance on our own? How many times have we despised God's grace, which he showed to someone who did us wrong? Do honest self Evaluation, is there a little of Joab in you? I was encouraged by the honesty of one commentator on this passage who wrote, Though I profess to care only about Jesus' kingship, I fear I am more concerned about my place in his regime than with the honor of his name. Under the guise of service in the kingdom, I crave all the strokes I can get even at Jesus' expense, close quote. May Joab's sin be a mirror for all of us to face the power-hungry Joab inside of us and turn to the Lord in repentance. And may we bring our hearts to Him and pray that God would grant peace in our life, peace in our church, humility in our life, humility in our church, that God would make us servants, content with the Lord's plan for our life. David mourns Abner, and I love this. He makes Joab mourn him too. He, in fact, seems like he puts Joab in front of the funeral procession. The king laments him with a song that clearly lays the blame at Joab's feet. Well, in chapter 4, Ishbosheth hears of Abner's death, and he knows that his days are numbered, and they are. And guess what happens to old Ishbosheth? Two of his own men stab him to death. And he guesses where they stab him. A lot of stomach stabbing going on this week. They cut off his head, and they bring it to David. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't read chapter 1. They're going for a little power grab of their own. And they're going to make David king, because of what they did. They hold up the head, and David kills him. Again, he's not going to come to power by the blood-stained hands of wicked men. And in chapter 4, verse 9, David explains his reasons. Has God not protected me till now? Why should I expect this, this situation to be any different? Let's finish reading this passage in chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And so, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when... Saul was king over us. It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. 
So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So David's king over all of Israel. What had been promised to him way back in 1 Samuel 16 has now finally come to pass. Something like 15, maybe even 20 years later. And David never had to fight to take the kingdom. The Lord gave it to him. The Lord changed the hearts of the elders and they came to the Lord's anointed. God's kingdom never comes by the force of man, but with the power of God. Did you notice that in the prayer that Pastor Steve led this morning? Jesus teaching us to pray, to God, your kingdom come, your will be done. So David goes on and he conquers Jerusalem, takes it from the people who were living there, makes it God's city, and he builds a home there, and the Lord blesses his king, and David is king over all of God's people in a united kingdom, ruling from Jerusalem. God had fulfilled his promise. All David had to do was to wait. It came in just the right time, in just the right way, by God's power, according to God's will. In the power vacuum after Saul's death, there were those who rose to take their place underneath that power. They filled that vacuum with themselves and they brought themselves to ruin. But David, we've seen, waited in silence and found God was faithful. Friend, I hope that you hear this clear message this morning. When life creates a power vacuum, wait for the Lord in silence. Resist the urge to grab power for yourself. The only political positioning that is befitting a child of God is to go to the cross and to throw yourself at the mercy of the Son of God and to pray as Christians have for 2,000 years, your will be done. This is what the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. They knew the prophecies. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah of God and that he would come to Jerusalem that he would take up his rule in Jerusalem, just like David had done a thousand years earlier. And they saw this as an opportunity to secure their own position in his kingdom. And the Lord explains to them, Mark 10, 35 to 45, he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Jesus showed true power at Calvary. With his innocent hands and feet nailed to a wooden cross, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. And for who did he die? For power-obsessed, hell-deserving sinners like us. True power gives. True power lays down. True power serves. Jesus Christ showed his greatness not by ascending to power, but by descending from it. He took the penalty of our sins. He endured God's wrath for sinners and died and God raised him to life. Make note of that. The biggest problem in your life was overcome by dying. By admitting your sin, by casting yourself upon the mercy of God, He will not only forgive you of your sin, but He will empower you in a way that would not lead to dominating and destroying others. But He will empower you in a way that will lead you to giving and serving others. Don't be afraid of powerlessness. Trust the Lord. You see, it's only when we're okay not having power that we can be trusted with it. Only when we're okay being powerless, living at the mercy of God's will for our life, can we be trusted with God's power. The power that He will give to you to die to yourself, to die to sin, the power to live to God, the power to disciple others, the power to serve. The way to get power in this kingdom is to let it go and to trust God and be patient. The most powerful ones among us are the ones that we are not likely to see. Why? Because they're patiently and selflessly serving the rest of us. Power is from the Lord. Wait for Him in silence. Let's pray.